Hello and welcome to the first episode of Responsible Adult in which I talk to probably the most important responsible adult in my life, my mum. So um, me and my mum talk about her moving out of home, moving into her amazing flat in central Brighton, Um, you know, a little bit about before that, um, growing up in Richmond. We talk about the effects of being bullied at school and the kind of emotional and physical labour of uh, being a mother and, you know, the the highs and lows that come with growing into a responsible adult. Um, There are some caveats to this. This is not the first podcast that I recorded, but this is generally the first podcasting I've ever done. I'm doing it all myself. I've got no producer. Um, I've pretty much learned all on the job. So in pretty much every single episode of this podcast, there's going to be some kind of mistake. So mistake of the week is that I think my dad's phone went off at some point. So there's some kind of ghostly marimba going on at some point. So yeah, I really hope you enjoy as we learn about my mum becoming a responsible adult. Hey mum. <laughs> hello, hello Tilda. <laughs> How are you doing today? Mm. I'm good thank you, just swigging my tea. Yeah you've got tea and I don't. Haven't gone for a beverage today. I know, I'm sorry. I'm doing a lot of wheeze today. <laughs> stay off the liquids. Cool, thanks for letting <laughs> me know that. <laughs> well, not just you, everyone. Um, thanks for joining me on Responsible Adult. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it. Um, you are kind of the main responsible adult in my life so this is going to be an interesting one um only kind of <laughs> well i've also Great, also got a hook, then. present present father <coughs> but we're doing his podcast another time so do you want to take me back to a moment that you consider to be the first time you kind of were aware of adulthood or felt like you were expected to be an adult for the first time or first identified as an adult Hmm. Um, I guess significantly sort of moving um, to Brighton really and living on my own um, and sort of setting up home on my own that made me just feel very grown up whether I was sort of doing it properly or not I I don't know but um, yeah I think before then I'd always, always had that sort of reference back to home and parents and stuff so it was I pretty much didn't go back after I moved here in any significant way and I had my own sort of life and house that, that sort of muddled along mm. from that point. So, yeah. And it was quite sort of a bleak feeling at times as sort of like, oh, my God, I actually have to live in this flat and pay bills and do the washing up. And, um, yeah, that's sort of mm. when it hit home, really, all of the the domestic sort of responsibilities, I suppose, mm. um, which you don't really get when you're younger. Yeah, but this was your Maisonette flat in Central Brighton, which you got for... Yeah, so, I mean, you know, obviously huge advantages of it being a ridiculously cheap flat. But, I mean, when, when I took it on, I remember because of the estate agent ringing up, I'd been looking for somewhere to, to live. It's the start of my second year of my degree. And um, the I was in I was in at home with Dad, and uh, the, the estate agent rang up and he said, well, we have found somewhere. Um, it's, uh, it's 20 quid a... a yeah, 20 quid a week. Um, it's got three bedrooms and it's in Power Square. And I knew where Power Square was because I'd 
very first found Power Square, when I very first came to Brighton to actually go to my interview for my course, I got the Argus, because that's what you did in those days to find places <laughs> to live, get the Argus and there were sort of lists of, of sort of flats and landlords telephone numbers and I went to the phone boxes at the bottom of Power Square and rang up about a flat in Power Square and they didn't answer the phone and so I just sort of, you know, randomly stayed somewhere else for the first year with a sort of friend, a friend of a friend of my parents, um, which was Matt, big tall Matt mm -hmm. from Mexico. Um, that's a whole nother story. Um, but so I knew where that square was. So I just said yes over the phone. And he said, oh, you know, do you want to come and see it? I said, no, I'll take it. <laughs> and then I told my dad and he went, you idiot, it's probably got no toilet. You know, it was sort of, we couldn't, neither of us could work mm. out why a three bedroom flat could only be £20 a week. £20 a week. Um, and yeah, obviously when I went to see it, it was like bloody hell. You know, it was just enormous. Um, it was it was completely barren of anything. So it that's that's what I mean by I think I felt hugely like a responsible adult because I, I literally moved in. It didn't even have any light bulbs in the light <laughs> fittings. Um, you know, it had no kitchen at all. There was a sink, I think, but nothing else. It had no no heating of any sort whatsoever um, so it had two open fires and I went to the Sunday market which is where you kind of got everything those days but I literally moved in with like a ghetto blaster and a duvet <laughs> and I think I had an ashtray as well probably. you know and that yeah probably and 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 then that was just like every weekend on, on my student grant I kind of went to the Sunday market and bought things like a chair and then a table and then some more chairs. My mum had a friend who um, actually helped sort of homeless rehouse homeless people. It's like a sort of shelter thing, but she had this sort of um, furniture and and equipment sort of donations warehouse place. Mm. And I hired a van, and we. She gave me a cooker, beautiful old nineteen fifties lovely cooker that I don't know whether you can remember it still, but it was really. Uh, yeah. cream enamel yeah yeah no, I remember with, a, with an eye level grill mm -hmm. but anyway so it's, it's old cooker gas cooker and I think a little sort of old fridge and oh and a, and a mattress and you know so it's just basic stuff like that so it was literally just hand-to-mouth kind of existence and I sort of slept on a mattress in the middle of this enormous room on a wooden floor with no curtains and the wind howling in and you know lighting fires in the in the fireplace. Did you sleep in the front room? I think I I think I initially I think very first I slept in the front room. And I mean, you know, and I, it it didn't really at that point it didn't really occur to me to sort of get anyone else in. So I I lived there on my own for quite a long time, which is it's quite a big flat to live in on your own, but I never worried about that. Um and then eventually I sort of started getting a lodger. So actually, that paid for most of the twenty quid a week. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think you know it was it was more than half that they paid with a contribution towards bills. Um, God, yeah, and I had a sort of succession of really good and bad lodgers. Um, I found it much easier to live with blokes. They seemed to be much less sort of emotionally volatile and cleared up better. Really, um, that's yeah. changed. Yeah, that well. has changed. I don't know. They, but yeah, they, they just. I don't know. It just seemed to seem to rub along more easily with blokes who just sort of came and went. Whereas, I had a couple of girls that lived there who sort of 
were sort of friends and so inevitably there were sort of bits of upset. I had a, a German girl who I worked with at Glyndebourne as well and uh, she eventually just basically went out with my boyfriend so that was a bit annoying. Peak. Um, a little um, bit annoying. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, she was a snake in the grass. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so it just, although it was really cheap and amazing, it was quite hard and uh, often, you know, sort of people say to me, oh, you know, that's that's amazing. It's like, yeah, but I, I stuck it out for 20 years. You know, most people would have kind of moved on in a year or two and something else would have happened. And they, But there was something about that place that really grounded me and sort of was the foundation of sort of everything that came after finishing college was because I had a sort of a stable and affordable home. Mm. Um, and it certainly sort of contributed to why I stayed in Brighton. Um, it contributed contributed to how I ended up with your dad um, and yeah it was an amazing place it was an amazing sort of mm. beginning of responsible adulthood and that that place sort of facilitated that a lot yeah so before that you grew up in Richmond yeah um, with your mum and dad and then later on just your dad I think yeah I grew up in in a sort of arty household with um, sort of interesting arty parents but I was an only child, so I, I kind of hung out with lots of grown-ups and they were always having like Labour Party meetings or Film Society meetings in our living room. And I used to go around with all the coffee cups and sort of generally lurk about. Um, so I was quite involved in, or just aware of that sort of stuff going on. Um, and I think it was a bit sort of, of a precocious only child, really. But, you know, I did know, I had lots of friends on the street who used to play out on the streets. It was much more kind of ordinary area than than Richmond is now it was you know sort of mostly just ordinary people with their kids in the local comprehensive and primary schools and we all shared bikes and there were lots of it was kind of the the era was um like the jubilee street party so there was mm. a lot of sort of community activities and parties and my dad was in a cricket team with the local pub which was a sort of hub of things and we used to go off on and play cricket you know sort of um visit other teams and have days out and all the mums and kids would go and so it was all kind of quite sort of idyllic and jolly really mm. um but I think I was, I was I don't know I kind of was a bit traumatic as a as a teenager I think because I was well you know typical teenager and I think my mum was going through some sort of midlife crisis at that point and was very dissatisfied with with her life with my dad and and kind of the situation including me really because we just argued all the time and me and dad basically wanted to sit around and watch telly <laughs> and she never did and she used to come home from work and then crash about in the kitchen and be really stroppy and then go up to her room so I could see that there were there were difficulties sort of developing between her and dad and it sort of seemed inevitable really she she was always more sort of the independent one and I think in order to make it happen she decided to leave but it was all negotiated in a very grown-up way um so they combined resources financially and she and with contributions I think you know it's sort of their money together yeah. bought a flat in Finsbury Park which wasn't that much money and it was in the middle of the red what was then the red light district right behind the arsenal but it was a, a biggish sort of one bedroom flat and a Victorian house and she lived there for years I can't remember how long 
but and she'd still kind of come home occasionally she'd come home for weekends if there was a party on or some sort of event at the film society or you know she'd sort of come home and stay in her room and they'd see friends together and that sort of just went on for probably I don't know 20 years really I'm not you know in the time that I left home um so she she was kind of involved in my life but not domestically Mm. I used to go and see her in Finsbury Park and stay the night occasionally and but I was mainly based at, at, at home with Dad. And yeah. we, we just sort of rubbed along together quite happily. So how old were you when, when Granny left? I think I was... <laughs> oh, I, I think the sort of transition time was probably between sort of 14 to 16. Okay. Um, so kind of crucial yeah, rebellion cru- time. Kind of crucial rebellion, rebellious teenage years, which, I mean, you know, my dad, bless him, was not... He, he was... To an extent, blissfully unaware of of what I was up to, but on the other hand, I think he was very, he sort of handled it quite well, and he was tolerant, and therefore I was very honest most of the time about where I was or what I was doing. Um, whereas I knew a lot of my mates weren't, mm. um, and you know there were occasions when he drove across London in a mini at two o'clock in the morning to rescue three girls who couldn't get home, you know, because I knew I could ring him up and, and mm. say where I was and that we fucked up and yeah and it's sort of like the 20 quid on the clock thing you know that sort of no matter what no questions asked get yourself home there's always some money um he he yeah he didn't ask a lot of questions you know he yeah he was very present you know yeah. he was, he was a, a real sort of stable presence and he was a very happy and jolly and sociable man so you know it's very easy mm. for me to bring friends and boyfriends home and you know, they all loved him, so... So it was easy for you to kind of comfortably grow up at a, at a good pace? Yeah, yeah, I think, yes. I, I mean, it's only... It's sort of in retrospect, you know, I had a difficult time in my early 20s, and I... I don't know, I just sort of... I am aware that I probably could have done with a bit more of a... You know, I'm not even sure what it represents, but a bit more mothering or a bit more of a mother mm. figure... At that time, I think I might have, I don't know, I didn't have a lot of respect for myself. And I think that I was, you know, I was a bit, I wasn't wild as such, but I think I was a bit directionless and... Hedonistic. Hedonistic and and also just, you know, I sort of fell in with a lot of wrong people. And I, I always had quite a difficult time fitting in with groups. And that's obviously started at, at school mainly even primary school, um, mm. I, I, I was very unhappy for periods of time there because people were horrible to me and the bullying didn't even exist then, so they just used to kick me in the playground um, and there wasn't really a lot that anyone did about it. I ran out of, of school, of primary school once and sort of started making my own way home. I think it was probably about seven or eight or something. Mm. And I think that was the only time it kind of really came to a bit of a head and I think had to go and have a little chat with one of the teachers and I was supposed to tell them who'd upset me and you know it was sort of like well everyone <laughs> was sort of the world <laughs> yeah 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 but you know it, but that's the problem is it wasn't just like one person it was actually quite quite a sort of consistent you know I I had I don't know I really felt like I had a label stuck on my forehead which said you know bully me and I could never really 
could never really give in to conforming. So it was it was it was a really torturous thing for me because I was basically at least a head taller than most people mm. from the age of about five. I was huge, mm. um, and it's, as was I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you know even the boys and stuff. So I stood out, you know, and I think um, again I know in retrospect. I've understood this when I've looked at, at, at sort of big kids is they get treated like they're older and they're expected to be more emotionally stable and they're, you know, you sort of stand out and people have higher expectations of you even though you are only seven, you look like you're ten, you know. Yeah. And it there's, there's, I'm sure, some effect of that on just my physicality affected the way people saw me and treated me. Mm. Um, and I just I wasn't very good at conforming, you know. And I sort of developed fantastic sort of South London accents and did did what what you kind of do, like sort of wear the right thing. But I never quite got it right. And so you so when you say you weren't good at conforming, were you trying to but just not getting it right? No, or did you well, not want to? I was sort of yeah, I was sort of tortured about and that, and it, I felt like it was sort of going over to the dark side, you know, joining the bullies and doing the things that would completely make me sort of fit in and conform um would would have meant a complete sort of personality change and and I never kind of never went that far you know I didn't feel driven to to, to completely annihilate my personality so it was sort of a strange sort of as a kid anyway I felt like it was a, it was a um a sort of a, a point of survival was yeah keeping myself and my identity somehow going even though everyone seemed to find it distasteful in some way mm. probably I could say at this point including my mother you know that <laughs> that sort of maybe that's where that sort of connects up a little bit in terms of sort of psychology mm. um, but your mum was an artist as well really by trade um yeah she was a really uh creative person but kind of working for in ed- in education, they both were. I mean, my dad was a, was a, a teacher, in, a head of an art department that he'd been had the same job for years, and then he retired really early and just t- turned very seamlessly and happily into a full time artist at home in the studio, and just worked. And he had you know darkroom photographs, printmaking, painting, and it was all go. Whereas my mum was completely sort of tortured artist. She used to spend bloody hours sharpening pencils and saying she was going to do something and tidying up and and never actually do any work. Mm. Um, and she's still a bit like that. It, it's, it, I think she's she's never really found her her direction or confidence possibly to, to be a proper sort of full-time artist. And so even when she retired, she didn't really... She goes on a lot of art courses. She loves a course. Um... And she's very good at a lot of things, but that's almost it. She's so good at them, she can't bring herself to experiment and do anything slightly mm. risky and messy. Um, but yeah, so you know, she she was teaching um, and working, but it was all in North London, um, where she was near where she was living, and so it was quite a different, again, different life. Her work life was was with a sort of different groups of people and stuff. Mm. Um, so her. she liked to get stuff, likes to get stuff right. Oh gosh! Yeah. And you not quite conforming was getting it a bit wrong, so that's why you yeah. think it was. Yeah, and it's when I say I can't be asked, it's just yeah, I've, I've never been never found it a natural thing. I've had to work extra hard to to do those kind of things, and sort of intrinsically a bit lazy or given up a bit on on several occasions, and not 
not achieved great things academically, particularly. No, I don't. I don't have a, a sort of a huge sense of um, my mum's. The sort of creativity, like all the sort of sewing and textiles and things like that, obviously came a bit more from her because that was more her specialist area. Um, but I think that's you know it's 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 significant that I went into sort of costume making and textiles and theatre because it was different from what my parents were doing creatively mm. um, and sort of you know coming around to actually painting now as a 50 year old is is because I'm sort of coming back to stuff that I, I can look at it now because it's not being done by someone else in my family sort mm. of thing so um so when you moved to Brighton did you move totally on your own or did you have maybe friends that moved no. with you or I was completely on my own. I started a course where I knew absolutely no one. Mm. The degree course. There was nobody who came from London. No, I, I, I like I said, I met these two random people. Only one of whom I did live, sort of live with for a bit, but um, two random people on my interview day, who we decided to look for a place to live together, and they didn't particularly sort of turn into. I, I did again. This sort of, I had this real sense of. Um, there weren't a lot of people I had much in common with in my year on my course. I actually got on better with people in the year above mm -hmm. and still know some of them. And I started work you know, pretty much straight away because I'd, wor I'd worked as a waitress in Richmond, um, you know, first Saturday job at 16, really, working in this sort of coffee bar called Omni's. It was fantastic. It was like a sort of... Um, like a sort of Kensington Gardens sort of uh, marketplace with yeah. lots of different stalls in this big sort of place. And, and the upstairs was this sort of cafe where all the sort of punks and mods and drug addicts and God knows what would sort of hang out and like nurse one cup of coffee sitting in. It was sort of big and quite sort of seedy. And um, but it was it was really quite a cool place to actually get get a Saturday job. And mm. I remember sort of dressing up in my most sort of cool outfit and then <laughs> sort of spending the whole day on the till hunting up people's coffees. And, and and quite a lot of people I knew coming in, so it was like Saturday in Richmond was like a big, it was quite a big centre where people, all the sort of youth came into Richmond mm. socially um, and had lots of, always had lots of clothes shops and stuff. So it was sort of quite, quite, a, quite a sort of happening place to be in that part of London. Mm. Um, How did it compare to Brighton though, when you moved to Brighton? Um, well, th at that time when I was there, probably relatively well and I think because I'd grown up in in really quite a sort of an arty creative bohemian sort of community vibe yeah you know lo lots of artists and graphic designers and actors and you know singers and jazz musicians and things like that I think that sort of gym really coming to Brighton was not it especially then it was it was a lot smaller and uh, um quite similar to yeah. that I found the rest of London quite daunting and the, the effort and energy that went into whenever I was, um, and I went did my foundation and I was sort of on the train for hours and travelling across London and living at the end of the district line, I kind of got this real sense of, when I came to Brighton I thought, oh God, that's brilliant, everything's nearby, I can <laughs> walk home, it's still got plenty of clubs and pubs and the cinemas and things going, and interesting people and mm. and yet it's all in a in a... A contained smaller area yeah um was it as interesting as it is now yes I, d I don't know whether I'm unusual in that respect is I think it's quite amazing that I like 
this place as much now as I did then. And it's, it's really different now. It is a big, more big cosmopolitan city. But it's as special to me now as, as it was then. Mm. And I knew within about six months, I think, of starting my course. Even So even before I got the flat, I knew that I was never going back to London and that I, that I wanted to stay here. And that's, I mean, that sense of adulthood, adult life, this being where I wanted mm. to spend my adult life, you know, and putting down those kind of roots. Do you see the Brighton that you moved to then? Do you see it in, like, today's... Brighton, oh, definitely in bits of it. I mean, you know, obviously, Do you think I, the roots are still there. I, well, because the roots, my friends are the roots, and I still know most of the people that I mm. met within the first year, I suppose. So I, I, when I was saying before, I, I mean, I met, I made a lot of my best and good friends working in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually where I met your dad. Mm-hmm. Um, not not to go out with, but you know, we worked together. He was a manager, and you know, we were, we were good mates, um, and. Yeah, you know, a lot of people that I'm still very close friends mm. with now. Perrin, who's also going to well, feature on this podcast. Yeah, no, that's, well, yeah, but, so Perrin is the only, the only, so when you said about, did I have any friends, so when I was, I, I'd graduated, um, but it was quite early days, um, I'm trying to think how old we were, maybe about sort of 23, something like that. No, maybe it was later than that, because I was, I was going out with Stu by then. And that wasn't until a bit later. But um, I, I met we. She and I met from hanging out in Chiswick in Richmond through a mutual friend. We didn't sort of see each other that often, but then we both went on this holiday to Greece to stay with a friend, this mm-hmm. mutual friend, who was absolutely shit and going out with this monstrous Greek guy. And she'd lied <laughs> through her teeth and said, "Oh yeah, come to Greece and you've got you know free accommodation and stay two weeks and it'll be great." It's um, so funny because Perrin has obviously also been on this podcast. Um, and her, she left it at, we went to stay with Amanda and Kate didn't like her very much, but that's the end of that. <laughs> well, neither of us were so actually staying. So we had it staying, from both sides. Yeah, neither of us were actually staying with Amanda because she wouldn't actually let, she didn't have accommodation for us to stay in her, her boyfriend wouldn't let us stay in their flat. So she'd sort of hurriedly sorted out, I think, well, it was sort of the first week I arrived. So Perrin and I crossed over for a week. And we basically sort of spent this week hanging out together and having a right laugh um, and got really sort of close. But it was like, I think I had nowhere to stay at all until Perrin left and then I moved into the place that she'd been in. Mm. And literally the first week I was sort of bumped into somebody else's boy ex-boyfriend's bedroom with him in the same room, which was very odd. Um, but, you know, so we, we just got thrown into to this sort of mm. situation of having to look after ourselves. And it was only the second holiday I'd ever done. I think it was we were 17, mm. you know. So I know it's, everyone goes sort of travelling these days quite easily, but it was it was pretty, like, unstructured, sort of, oh, God, what do I do now kind of stuff. And it was two weeks and just sort of just hung on and had no money and stuff like that, you know. And I remember just not eating all day and saving enough money to go out and have a couple of drinks in the evening. Oh, God. I know. Terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> You can kind of sort of get away with it and then just sort of eating bread. But um, so that's where I met Perrin. And so she came to Brighton. Um, we were both in our sort of mid-twenties, I think. Um, and that, that was the first time I really ever had someone living sort of here that I could sort of call like a proper old, mm. you know, which she comes from the same place as me in the same sort of background um, sort of environment. 
um, obviously different family-wise, but, you know, mm. we, we grew up in the same hood. Um, so we have, you know, that's that's my oldest close friend, really. So you were working in Browns, was it, mostly? Uh, no, I worked in Richards. So it was next door to Browns, and it was a sort of competitor. So it wasn't quite as cool. And Dad, who had worked in Browns, yes, and he'd worked in Browns. But then he Richards opened as a new venture, I think, and... Stuart went in as the manager, and I was sort of a new recruit waitress. Oh, and also Amy and and um, Barry. Amy worked as a waitress there, who mm-hmm. is your distant, absent godmother. Yeah. Sorry, um, any listeners that don't, for some reason, know me or my mum. You won't know who <laughs> any of these people are. But Amy, yeah, Amy's my godmother who lives in California. Yeah, maybe... All of could... these people that have flitted in and out of my life yeah maybe you could do a podcast with her over the airwaves whatever you call it (laughs) cross the pond (laughs) with some sort of electricery but yeah so I I just I worked there with a really nice bunch of people and we all socialized together and went clubbing after work and and was that kind of a means to an end job how did that align with your creative exploits it was just well it was around the edges of, of college um mainly you know so it was like three years basically of working pretty consistently in in evenings and weekend shifts to um sort of supplement college Mm. did Um, you feel did you feel like it you could fit the two in oh totally yeah wasn't too demanding the course no oh no i I mean i never felt it was demanding in any way really you you sort of well i I see it's weird because it i worked really hard and i mean you know i nearly got a first not quite because i didn't write the, the essay on time Unfortunately, it was the academic bit that let me Classic down. dyslexia. <laughs> yep. And, and, yeah, no dyslexia support or anything like yeah, that Yeah, of there. course, that's and very true. It would have been so different, and I think I'd have got extra time and, anyway, not particularly bitter. <laughs> um, but it was a really great course. It was a mad course with, it was called Expressive Arts, and there are still a couple of us left in this town, and even they, they will agree that it was a weird course that was unlike any other. It was a people who are very multidisciplinary so people yeah. wafted about doing different things in different departments and they were all either uh, musicians dancers or or theater performers mm-hmm. alongside being visual artists so the, there were always like mad performances with extraordinary costumes That's really and cool. there was this really a, a great club in brighton called the zap club uh, look it up. It was really cool. Where it, is we, that a club still now? It, well, it's still one of the arches down on the seafront. Oh but God, it, it's probably it was it's not worth looking up. <laughs> but no, it was called the Zap, and yeah. it, it you know was it was a nightclub, but it was full of performance art and and live stuff going oh, wow. on. It was a sort of punk kind of esque, nice. extraordinary cabaret sort of club, mm-hmm. um, and that you know a lot of people on my course either started that club or, or, or were part of it for for many years. And lots of, like, I mean, well, they were called Pookie Snackenburgers, but Stomp. Um, a lot of, sort of people, again, who I still know, but sort of performers and just slightly edgy and random people came out of that course. And, you know, it was really unusual. It was really... Mm. So, no, it was, it was cool. Just... Um, had a great time. Probably did work really hard, but I didn't notice it because it was what I loved doing, you know. Yeah. Did you kind of grow into growing up quite quickly, if you get what I mean? Like, did you feel comfortable and kind of thriving? Um, I don't know about thriving. I think I just kind of got on with it and didn't really... I didn't really think about it too much until I 
did get, I kind of got hit by a really severe depression, just sort of before I met your dad, really, but, um, well, I said, don't say met, but as in started going out with your dad, because obviously mm. I, I knew him quite well, but he was away, sort of starting to fly then. So I only saw him in Brighton like once a year or something when he came back from some course he was doing. Um, but I'd, I'd had a, a bad run of very dodgy boyfriends, and, and I think that it really affected my um my self-esteem and it you know I think I think I was potentially there there were already I was already vulnerable to it because I felt I think I'd sort of just kept going independently for for quite a long time and I wasn't like kind of really successful I was just managing to get jobs here and there in the creative sort of costume making and costume design and um bit of waitressing work and sort of rubbing along as i say the sort of the 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 dodgy german lodger who started going out with my boyfriend was was a mere minuscule example but i had another i went out with a a guy for a year and it was you know it was really nice it was really good quite a successful happy sort of relationship really and um we had a couple of really good friends, and so the four of us, we hung out a lot. Um, and I remember it was just before, I think it was before a Christmas, or it was in the winter anyway, and uh, we were all in the pub actually discussing all booking a holiday in the summer, the next summer, and like talking about where we might all go mm. um, and where we'd like to go. And I just remember that. And then I remember the next day or the day after, I was still at college then, cause I, I, so I, I went got up and sort of went downstairs to go to college and there was a post on the ground floor sort of outside my flat so there was a post on the in the hall communal mm. hall and there was a, a letter and I sort of p- picked it up and started and opened it and started reading it on my way down to college and it basically said that um it was uh, he was terribly sorry but letting me know that as of the day before he had got married to this other girl I, I knew who she was in that I know she was his girlfriend before I met him, so he'd he'd mentioned the name of this person, yeah. um, and said that she was really like quite flaky and demanding or something like that, and what a relief it was not to be going out with her for <sighs> whatever reason. Um, but yeah, it was basically that I yeah yesterday I got married, um, and it was devastating the more than anything else it was the complete loss of control over my life Mm. that I that I will still I never forgive him for and it was sort of if he just fucking told me you know if he'd actually left me before this had happened had told me that he'd got somebody else you know you know that he was having another relationship with somebody else and that it needed to to you know our relationship needed to end it would have been you know like sad and I'd have been upset but having no control over this and having it done to me somehow it sort of flicked a a switch you know and yeah it it was really difficult to recover from that and it was totally secret I mean on on this basis like both his best friend and this other uh, his, his best friend and his best friend's girlfriend who we'd been in the pub with two days before they didn't know either Really? He'd kept this thing completely and utterly. She didn't live in Brighton, this girl, and he'd been going to see her. And one of the really scary things, which um, I kind of realised fairly quickly, was that the 
The reason that he didn't tell me is because he wasn't sure that she was going to turn up to actually get married to him. And if if she hadn't, I would never have known and he'd have stayed with me. Mm. And that is really scary because it's the sort of person that I might have put down some roots with and ended up having kids with or something like that. Because that's how I kind of thought how good the relationship yeah. was. Um, so, so from a plus point that yeah was that'll stop you thriving a lucky yeah but, but it, you know so looking back again lucky escape that I didn't get yeah. more ensconced with this guy who was obviously a complete nutter um that's insane but uh yeah and then and then after that I went out with a guy who was um 20 years older than me and oh. and, a, and a sort of uh what's the word emotionally controlling and kind of quite yeah quite weird really but I I realized I sort of came out of that by sort of by hook or by crook, really through having quite a couple of years of, of therapy, and yeah, just got, got I got very low, and I got to the point where I, I, you know, wasn't I literally physically wasn't moving. I was in bed all the time and not not getting up, and sort of stopped functioning. You know, felt I had to get some help, which I did, and was amazing. It was really. You know, thoroughly recommend it to anyone. Um, took took a few years, sort of initially going and spending six months just sort of going and crying for most of the hour. Mm. Um, how does how did a person get therapy back then? Was it quite accessible? No, I mean it's it's sort of exactly the same as before uh, as as it is now. Which is, I think, if you'd gone to the doctor, it would have been a long process of waiting to be seen by somebody and who possibly wouldn't have been massively qualified unless you were like properly mad i think depression as it's as it is wasn't really seen as a priority um, mental health issue yeah that's what i was going to ask really was so you never saw a doctor about it you just went straight to yeah i think i think i might have seen my gp just generally um because i'd um got some sort of health issues related to not really taking care of myself but that but that you know again yeah don't think it was really sort of responded to particularly well um no I I got a you know I saw a therapist privately um and my um parents helped pay for it you know it was as simple as that I did I managed to I hid it from them for a long time mm. um and then I think I sort of managed to let it all out you know and tell them and and show how um utterly sort of helpless I was um yeah you know it was it was a really difficult thing to admit um and all those kind of all that independence and sort of managing you know I, I do feel like it sort of it had to come out in the end and and it goes sort of right back to being bullied at school you know it's that sort of stuff that just gets bottled up and you stay very strong and very independent and you you manage um, and then obviously you know it's sort of you can't manage all of that forever yeah so um you know it was really quite a big turning point in my life mm. of of trying not to hold it not not managing it all trying not to be such a overly responsible adult in some ways and that certainly goes along with getting pretty much on the road to recovery and and getting together with dad because it was kind of actually learning to sort of trust somebody again and it was quite a long and slow process he and I getting together 
um, of him not really live, you know, not certainly not living together, and him being away for quite long periods of time, and mm. coming back, and us sort of not really officially being sort of going out together, and yeah, it took a few years before he officially moved in, and so it was kind of quite what's the word? It was sort of repairing kind of time where I consolidated yeah. my own recovery, but actually learnt to lean on and rely on someone else but in not but not in the kind of intense way that you had done previously it sounds like yeah maybe not be so needy of 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 that kind of I don't know or just he was just a better man I mean he was Mm. just a better man and he was the right man to to stay with and have children with and you know that I've I've never felt well it's like you right at the beginning you said well you know you're you're more or less the most at the adult of the most responsibility in my life it's like yeah you know the other person is your dad and Mm. that's who has helped me that's that's the only person I've really shared 100% responsibility with for anything for myself as well um you know and that's that's why it's it's an extremely significant relationship and a good one and in terms of so my dad your husband is a pilot well only just stopped being a pilot but yeah the time when you were having me and ed um he was off flying a lot yeah so how was that in terms of like a lot of people on the podcast have defined having kids as like quite an important adult moment Mm. so how was that in terms of um you know the responsibility being quite unevenly spread out in terms of just like physical presence well yeah so uh, but I did feel the responsibility was spread out because I relied absolutely 100% on your dad going out and earning enough money yeah yeah of course pay for all the things that that you you needed and we did and without any sort of question um I I knew that he would do what it took to to do that whilst I concentrated on I mean, it sort of happened that he had this well-paid job really before we kind of got it literally the day after you were born. He, he went off and did his first big sort of uh, passenger long-haul flight mm. um, and left me in my nighty, bloodstained, <laughs> not on my own, but, on, you know, bloodstained nighty as he went off in his smart uniform with his hat on. Um yeah, it was it, it was physically really, 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 really hard at times. Um, but in terms of being, I absolutely loved the responsibility. Uh, I, you know, it's the best thing I've ever done. Being being a full time mum was, I felt, um, a choice. Um, you know, to a certain extent, a privilege because you know some some people don't earn enough money for one person to go out and do that, and they both have to work. Um, but, uh, you know, putting a hundred percent into, to, I mean, I kind of, you know, I saw it as a job and, you know, I think it costs an awful lot of money to put kids in nurseries and childcare. And if you, so if you sort of paid me that to be at home, actually it was quite a good successful job that I had for many years. Um, and you know, I worked really hard at it and I made sure that you had really sort of quite a rich and creative home life we did a lot of stuff at home and but it was all relatively unstructured and free and you know all those little simple things like walking to school every day 
And um, oh, I saw scary makeup lady today for the scary first time in years. Lady. Do you remember scary makeup with lady? the purple hair? Well, no, she, well, she's got or, white or hair blue now, or grey, yes, or, white. Or, or all different colours. But she's still totally mm. got a white face with enormous black eyebrows and purple wow. and silver streaks down her mm. cheekbones, and yeah, just caked absolutely like <laughs> like she's wearing sort of spaceman sort of wow. makeup. I know. But she was one of our Walk to School characters, wasn't she? Yeah, so Scary Makeup Lady was a character on the Walk to School. And, um, yeah, there was... Do you remember Running Man? Running Man, with yeah, I With a plastic bag? He was always... Well, he just ran. <laughs> I mean, he never walked and he had a plastic bag. Did what it said on the tin. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember Running Man. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so just those, you know, those, those oh. were glorious years for me. And, you know, there were times when, it, yeah, I was just so knackered and, you know, I had no car. That's, you know, it's again, it's the things like, I mean, it's like Sam's Dickensian, really. We, you know, so you were basically being brought up in a flat yeah. with no no heating. So we had, well, no central heating, no double glazing or anything. Like that. We had huge curtains everywhere. We had real f- lit fires lit with, with fire guards around them that, that, that had all the sort of clothes draped on top of them to dry. Um, and, yeah, it was just sort of freezing cold, up, up three flights of stairs at the top of an enormous hill. So I remember being at the end of my tether when you were sort of kind of walking and Ed was a baby and pushing a pushchair with Ed, all the shopping from the supermarket, dragging you up mm. a hill that you didn't want to go up and how how exhausting that kind of, the physicality of that, getting home, getting you up three flights of stairs getting you fed getting you you know and that what people always say that sort of five six o'clock in the evening time it's just the worst time that's that's like the witching hour for mm. for parents who've been at it all day and I'm, I'm sure it's just as bad for people who sort of come home from work with their kids out of childcare and then have to put tired yeah, yeah, children yeah. and feed them a bit but yeah so that's there were there were sort of dark times like that but on the whole it just you know, and I had some really good girlfriends that, that, you know, you had little mates and we'd all hang out and going to the beach and the beach hut, you know, camping. There, it was just all great sort of activities that you do with children and I mm. really enjoyed all of that. Um, and, you know, all the creative side, all the cooking and craft and, yeah, getting involved with your primary school was, was really significant. Again, sort of being a responsible adult in a helping a volunteering and helping in in a school that needed you know parents to help and support them and really getting stuck in there and working with lots of other really amazing parents and having good yeah. friends and you know quite a, a social life through that you know those there's all really positive things that came out of the responsibilities of of being mm. a parent and you know I think because because we've never really, you know, never really been poor. Um, we've never n- so far suffered from major illnesses, or you, you know, you and Ed have been healthy. Um, the kind of traumas that can make being responsible for children really hard um, have have, you know, pretty much not come our way. Or we've done our best to be stable and, you know, um, enjoy what we've got. Um, yeah, so you know, it's it's been it's been a a really enjoyable responsibility. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so 
I ask everyone to talk about a song that mm. reminds them of their early adulthood or a period of time that we talked about. Is there one that comes to mind? Well, it's it's sort of it's tricky with sort of early adulthood because I'd sort of such eclectic sort of taste then really. Maybe a, so maybe a Kate Bush. Or maybe I'd just go for um Wuthering Heights, whatever it's called. Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights. So where did you listen to Kate Bush? Um well, because my name is Kate and oh, I yeah. had very frizzy hair that used to look like Kate Bush. Um so I used to and well and she was just sort of dramatic and dancey and um yeah, I think I just really got off on the the sort of drama of it all dramaturgy um <laughs> and she used to waft around and do amazing dancing in leotards and i kind of quite liked her 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 look it, but you know we're talking about 16 to 17 then not necessarily mm. cool um now some questions that i ask everybody um when is the luckiest that you've ever felt in your life hmm I don't know because I feel it's sort of like looking in reflection. You can sort of say you were lucky. Um, I, 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 okay, I'll, I'll say I was lucky to get the flat in the square. I think you were too. <laughs> <laughs> Currently paying not twenty pounds a week yeah, for my flat. I know. I'm sorry. It's all right. Not your fault. It's all wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's been such a significant piece of luck. Yeah. Um, what's some advice that you would give to yourself at 21 that also applies to me? Don't smoke. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do. Yeah, honestly, would be my life would be different if I hadn't smoked. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'd be me, and I can't. I can't take it back, and I can't go back. But um, I mean, 21's a bit too late, really. I'd have to say that to myself when I was about 17. I think. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll take it. Um, and then the last one, to try and end on a positive note, um, what's something that you see in today's world that's a kind of positive change that myself and my my generation have to take advantage of? Oh, well, yourselves. I mean, there's, you know, the, the awareness that you have um, of, you know, politics and health and, and education and equality... Um, you know, I think I think there's been sort of progress in all of those areas in terms of your your engagement, people, young people's engagement with it, and your um, the, the, how well informed you are. And um, I I think you're going to be an amazing sort of generation, and it's not going to be easy. But um, I I I have every confidence that you are all going to fight and um yeah bring on the revolution <laughs> amen well that's a perfect note to end on thanks so much mum oh love you, you lots i love you too darling should we go and have a glass of wine yes please and <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs>